On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we dive deep into the litigation between the Live Golfers and the PGA Tour, um, and uh, which is really just getting started. Um, we had the TRO uh, decided last week so that the three players couldn't play in FedEx, but that is just, as I heard someone say, kind of you know, uh, the first hole of a 72-hole tournament. Um, and um, obviously a critically important litigation for the PGA Tour. Uh, and we have the great good fortune on this episode of being joined by Craig Seaball, who is uh, one of the country's leading antitrust lawyers, um, senior partner at the law firm of Vincent and Elkins, um, and uh, where he co-eds the litigation and regulatory um, practice, um, and um, uh, also an avid golfer. And um, after we spend uh, about the first 20 minutes or so talking about golf generally, we kind of get into, at that point, uh, the live stuff and um, uh, go through the antitrust claims. Um, I try to um, hopefully make this as understandable with Craig's great help as, as we can, um, walking through the nature of the claims, um, uh, starting with kind of just basically the facts of the PGA Tour, which I think is important here because it's really different than other types of sports leagues, um, and then getting into the law, what the nature of the claims are uh, under the Sherman Act and um, kind of walking through the analysis um, and ending with um, where we think this may be coming out um, and then touching at the end on the world rankings, um, which is so critical for qualifying for the majors. Um, uh, the OWGR, the official world golf rankings, are used by the majors um, as an important qualification point. And, you know, as we talk about the end, I think that's actually a very important aspect of this and how um, it is likely um, uh, to be a deciding factor in, in the future of LIV. Um, so upcoming, um, the Craig Seabolt um, on The Golf Guy uh, and our discussion of the Live Players and the PGA Tour litigation. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And this one's going to be a little different than some of our other ones. Um, you know, most of the listeners know we've talked with uh, a lot of um, folks in the golf industry, golf club pros, uh, other folks. Um, but uh, And we've occasionally talked about the Live Golf um, issue with some of those folks. But today... We've got, we're very fortunate to have a true expert in antitrust law, um, Craig Seabolt from uh, the uh, firm of Vincent and Elkins, um, who um, uh, is a very experienced antitrust lawyer. He's thought about the, the live uh, case. And although we'll get started with a little bit of golf, we're going to get into uh, the live stuff in a, in a deeper way. Um, it's such a big issue in golf. Um, you know, I've never seen anything rock the golf world like this has. Um, so Craig, thank you so much for spending some time for us today to discuss all these items. Oh, my pleasure. I look forward to talking to you. I, uh, I had a chance to play golf this weekend and uh, I birdied the 18th hole. So whenever you birdie the 18th hole over the weekend, you feel great going into the week. So I feel great. But 
as a true golfer, uh, it was kind of a sad story too, because I got to the 16th hole and I said to myself, which is you never want to do as a golfer. I said, Oh, if I just par the next three holes, I'm going to shoot 78. And for me, that's a pretty good round. That's a good score. Oh, great. So I'd been hitting the driver all really well uh, when I played. And of course, the first thing I do after that thought is duck hook one into the woods, take a double <laughs> bogey. And then I get to the 70th hole. I said, well, I can still shoot uh, 79 if I birdie then one of the next two holes. And then I get a bogey. But then I birdied 18. So, you know, you want to say, oh, I birdied 18 and shot 77, but I birdied 18 to shoot 80. So uh, I, as a golfer, I focus on the positive. I'm only focused on the birdie on 18. That's fantastic. And that that's a great little vignette of golf in a nutshell, to be sure. It's such a great game. Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of your background and, and your background in golf. I know you grew up in Pennsylvania and started when I think you were 12. How did you get introduced to the game? You know, just like a lot of people through my dad, my dad was a uh, a sales guy. He sold industrial equipment into the steel industry and into the cement industry and he called the golf course his outdoor office and he would take clients <laughs> out during the summer and, and and play with them two or three times a week. And so really through him, I got the golf bug and, you know, it just was a great way growing up to spend Saturdays and Sundays with my dad going out and play golf. And as you know, Pennsylvania has some fantastic uh, golf courses. I, uh, we, I was uh, came from a fairly middle-class background. So uh, even so, the, some of the public courses in Pennsylvania were so fantastic. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, they are. Pennsylvania as is rich, rich golf history. And it's funny, actually, we've had probably a disproportionate number of our guests have been from the Philadelphia area with the deep history and of, of from head guy at Marion, head guy at, at Aronimink and, and the whole state, you know, uh, Saucon Valley. I mean, there's there's a million great courses. Um, well, so, Larry, yeah. I have to say Saucon Valley, you mentioned that is, I think, a hidden gem. I know they just played the, uh, what was it, the seniors? Uh, Senior USGA, right, Senior Open. We, uh, I just love that course. I had an opportunity to play it a couple times, and it's just such a special place. And I just never think it gets high enough ranked on the rankings. Uh, it's 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 just an awesome place. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. So you so you got started, which is how I got started through my dad, and and I have like you wonderful memories of playing with my dad. Um, I was I think I was nine, but very similar. Uh, he introduced me to the game. So you played on your high school team. Um, so, so talk to me about that, because it sounds like you had some pretty good sticks on that team. Yeah, it's pretty funny. We were in a very country rural school. I uh, only had 140 other senior class members with me. So it was a small um, school. And truthfully, about only 10 or 20 percent of the kids went to college. Uh, so you wouldn't really think that would be a golf powerhouse. But our high school was on top of a hill. And at the bottom of the hill was this wonderful little uh, public course called Cool Creek. And so it's one of those type of Pennsylvania courses where, you know, after the UAW folks would leave Caterpillar or Harley Davidson, which were the big employers, they'd have their union leagues. And so, you know, a bunch of us would just go down there and you could play golf. And uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I played on the fourth or fifth position, depending on the year of our team. And, uh, you know, we I'm not sure we even lost more than a handful of matches in the four years we had. Um, Two guys ended up uh, becoming PGA, um, you know, golf pros at uh, courses in New York area. One guy uh, who's our third player, actually third player, won the state championship at Penn State, uh, shooting three under par as our third player. So there was a big gap between wow. the third player and me. And then another guy went to get a full scholarship for college. So it was a pretty stacked uh, team. I was definitely probably the weak link, but uh, it was fun. You know, one thing that's uh, funny, I tell people I had a 63 
stroke average. Um, what I don't tell people is in Pennsylvania, because the nights get short, we only play 14 hole matches. Uh, so I had a 63 average, but only over 14 holes. <laughs> That's good. I love that. That's great. Um, so, um, and you went on you and you went off, I think, to Franklin and Marshall, right, is where you went it, to college. Uh, a great uh, Division three school. I did uh, play golf, but I would say uh, my golf career there was really being on the practice bench. We had a pretty good team. And uh, uh, I would say the greatest thing about my golf career was I got to play golf for free for four years in college. Um, it was not remarkable in any other sense. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and uh, I my, my career was about the same in college. Um, that was about as far as I would I was going to go. And, and, and um, so, so I hear you, but you've still, um, and obviously went off to law school. You've had a tremendous career in law, but you've golf is still a big part of your life, right? I mean, you, you spend time uh, you're in Washington DC and in, in, in Viennese DC office, but you spend time in Hilton head. So between those two places, you sounds like you get a good chance to play a number of courses. Yeah, it's great. I do get to play a fair amount of golf. Uh, I'm just, uh, like I said, I kind of a, a kid from Pennsylvania with, uh, you know, fairly humble background. And so I just pinch myself that I can play some great golf courses and the things uh, being a lawyer in Washington has opened up to me. Um, you know, I just recently, really before the pandemic, uh, joined uh, Congressional. And so uh, we are very excited, uh, Larry, the 2037 Ryder Cup is coming. We're even selling merchandise for that. Wow, you're selling it already. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. They had started selling 2036 Ryder Cup uh, stuff. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, which messed right. up the uh, Ryder Cup. So those are probably going to be collector's items. So now we're selling 2037. One thing, Larry, I just thought I'd mention, because I listened yeah. to your podcast uh, last uh, week or two ago with Walter uh, Driver. Yeah. It was really fascinating. I was jealous when he was talking about that he just read books and uh golf was easy and a year later he was playing for stanford golf team right right for me golf has come hard but uh made me reflect that one of the sponsors i had lucky enough for uh congressional was jack vardaman i don't know if you know jack oh the jack. great so, so i'll tell you the only reason i know jack vardaman is because i'm a tony kornheiser podcast <laughs> listener and tony would talk about the great jack vardaman um and i think he was at williams and Connolly, if i'm remembering yeah, right he was, and, uh, yeah and he also was a, a, yeah. and right at the end of the career his career there i got to know him we worked together on a case and he's just such a wonderful gentleman and probably one of the best golfers ever to come out of virginia and uh what a fantastic lawyer and so you your 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 um podcast with walter really made me think about jack jack unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago uh, but he was just such a wonderful person and a wonderful lawyer. And uh, I really was a privilege that he was uh, willing to sponsor me. If I can digress for one second, I'll sure, tell you please, a funny, please. Yes. A funny story. Um, he uh, invited me down. He's one of these guys that belonged to all these clubs. And he was a yeah, member including of Seminole. Including Augusta, right? I know yeah, it's one exactly. of them. <laughs> well, he was nice enough to bring me to Seminole. And, um, you know, it was the day after the member guest. And they still have the boards up there. I know the live golfers talk about uh, the uh, the FedEx Cup was being the Super Bowl of golf. I think the member pro am at uh, Seminole was even bigger because everybody on the board was a star. And so right. we played and we got to the first hole and he said, oh, I brought my buddy along and I was with my good friend, Matt. And we were teeing off and he says, we'll play our usual game. I said, that's fine. He said, my buddy uh, um, and I will play you and Matt. And I said, that's fine. 
And so we're walking down the first fairway and uh, Jack and his, uh, his friend were reminiscing about all the um, U.S. amateurs and senior U.S. amateurs they had played in together. And I looked at my friend, Matt, I'm like, uh, I'm just checking. I said, I haven't played in any U.S. amateurs or senior amateurs. How many have you played in? And Matt said, uh, no, I haven't played any either. And so <laughs> we lost on the 12th hole, which I always thought was almost a victory that we made it to the 12th hole. And, uh, I was relieved to find that the usual bet at Seminole, at least at that time, was $30. So it's the best $30 I ever spent. I, mean, I he, bet. He hit his hybrids, even in the 70s, just so high and towering and straight. It was just uh, fantastic. And the, I don't mean to do it. The other thing that's really neat about Jack, he was uh, Sam Snead's best friend. So to the day he oh, wow. uh, I didn't know passed that. away, he was the person uh, trying to advocate to the tour that Sam Snead get credit for all the tournaments he played in. I think he's credited for 82, but Jack had counted that he really had 92 uh, PJ Tour wins because there were team events and things like that. So. Yeah. Uh, he stayed true to his friend to the very end. That's great. And yeah, you know, it's um, I'm not surprised he belongs to Seminole. I mean, you know, there's this group of folks that seems like when you belong to one, you belong to, you know, a bunch, you know, there's like Seminole, Augusta, Pine Valley. And um, but uh, that that's great. Um, and, uh, I, and and, you know, it's funny you mentioned the pro member at Seminole. I mean, they usually have it after the honda the monday after the honda classic when they're all down there for the pga tour and you're right i've seen the, you know the players that play it. it's like you know they get a better they get at least as good a field of pros for that that they do for the um pga tour tournaments it's amazing i have never seen leaderboards like they had there it was uh phenomenal yeah it really is so that's neat so you've so and and we should touch on congressional for a minute because the um the blue uh, course, which has been redone by Andrew Green, has just gotten rave reviews. Um, and I have not played it. I've watched it though during the ladies, you know, the KPMG PGA, LPGA tournament um, in June. Um, painfully watched Lexi miss those putts on the back nine, but. Um, it looks beautiful. I mean, he, but it looks so different. I mean, it's, a, he must've taken out a ton of trees. I mean, it looks like all these vistas from what I can tell on TV have been opened up. It must be great. Especially on the back nine, they have just eliminated all the trees and you just have these beautiful views of the clubhouse, which is imposing in the middle from everywhere. It, it was just a tremendous redo. He's a, he's a genius. Um, you know, one of the holes that they redid it mostly follows the same, uh, uh, pattern that the old course did but I don't know if you remember the old 18 which then became 10 which was this par 3 that you hit hit over water it's almost like right. number 12 not that I played Augusta but it looked like number 12 <laughs> where it was a very thin green it was really hard to hit well instead of doing that he moved the green from across the water to in front of the water so now you have mm -hmm. this little drop shot almost like number 7 at Pebble Beach but a little yeah. longer yeah. maybe at 100 yards like oh you can almost throw it down there it's so easy but there's these imposing bunkers on the left and there's water on the right and it's a really narrow green so it's uh it's intimidating and it was controversial i i loved it i thought it was a great uh part of it but uh it's great the other thing i have to say that's unique about it which uh i've never played a course like this there's no fringe and there's no first cut of rough it's just fairway oh, wow. green rough and bunkers and wow. big rest uh, 
Uh, so it's a, it's a little unnerving when you just miss a green by two inches and you're in four inches of rough. It seems like, gosh, I would rather be in the fringe, but uh, I guess all fair. And uh, it's, uh, that's, it's a little different than any other golf course. And I think it'll be its kind of calling card going forward. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Uh, that's great. And I know you've sort of ventured over to the UK and Scotland, um, and um, I'm impressed by some of the courses you have there. So Cruden Bay is kind of what you would put near the top of your list. Oh, my gosh. Like what a wonderful place. And I tell everybody that's going to Scotland to make time to go to Cruden Bay. Uh, it's up north, and uh, I guess I like quirky golf courses because it's definitely quirky there's this uh it's just so pretty and it's out kind of up in the middle of nowhere and, and the thing that i always remember there's this beautiful par three uh on the back nine which is a completely blind par three and you're sitting there and you've got these two huge dunes in front of you with all this gorse and other plants and all you see is the gorse in these dunes and there's this one little pole with a target sign on top of it almost like an archery sign and your caddy says, hit it 200 yards, not 100 yards, 200 yards over that sign. And it's just the coolest shot in the world. And you hit it and then you walk around and it just opens up like it's uh, almost like heavenly. You open up and you see this huge green in this area. It's it's really pretty special. But uh, you don't see a lot of blind par threes here in the United States. That's for sure. You don't. And it's funny. I think you mentioned you played La Hinch um, and that has the Dell hole. Um, so I haven't played Cruden Bay. I played La Hinch and I remember that's another blind par three, not yeah. 200 yards, but similar. But you have to hit over a rock, if I remember, that I think they put on top of the hill to where the pin is located that day. I, I think I must like quirky golf courses because I love that hole too. And there's a hole right before it at La Hinch. I don't know if it's a par five. And if you're lucky enough to try to go for it in two, there's this guy that I don't know if he lives in this like cave hut, comes out with a flag and waves you and then you can go hit it. So I, <laughs> I definitely like uh, like quirky golf. There are the, the I, I do too. I mean, it's 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 an incredible experience to get to play over there. So let's talk a little bit get into the law stuff. And before we get into the case, a little bit about your background. I know you're co-head of Viennese litigation, regulatory practice, a leader in the antitrust group. Um, what types of sort of antitrust cases and matters do you typically advise on? Yeah, great question. So I've pretty much done it all over my career. I started uh, trying to get uh, mergers and deals through uh, the FTC and Justice Department. And I've morphed on to, uh, although I do some of that, I still, but I mostly do representing companies and government investigations, uh, companies that are getting investigated by the Justice Department. You know, for instance, like the PGA Tour is getting invested by the Justice right. Department. I'm not handling that, but I would handle things like that. And then, you know, once it becomes public that there's an investigation, you normally have follow on civil litigation. So I'll handle that. I actually, uh, I was thinking about it as uh, I was getting ready for this podcast. I actually had a case involving the golf industry about oh, 20 did. years ago, which was pretty interesting. We represented a, um, it's really fascinating, this golf ball company called uh, Nitro. And what they did was, um, I'm sure you've heard like in uh, Myrtle Beach, we have so many golf courses up there yeah. that they literally have uh, divers coming and getting golf balls out of the marshes and the water. You know, someone tees up a new Pro V1 and hits it immediately in the water. So someone, they literally have, I think the number was at least one or two 18-wheeler truckloads of golf balls leaving Myrtle wow. Beach that wow. go down to, at least at this time, this was 20 years ago, went to this uh, hangar uh, in the golf, in, in, a, um, in an airport down in Florida and they would have people then sort the golf balls. They'd have a stack of Pro V1s, they'd have a stack of Callaways, and so forth and so on. And so 
the it was an antitrust and an IP dispute because um, Titleist did not like the fact that uh, the our client was reselling used Titleist Pro V1s. This was right after the Pro V1 came out, and our client would have. Um, uh, balls that were just needed to be cleaned up when they were kind of resold as is. And then they had refurbished golf balls, which is where there might be someone playing on a day three with a bunch of nicks in on it. And they would yeah. strip down the paint, repaint it, re-lacquer it, and also stamp the Titleist logo back on it. And oh but it would also say, it would also say, uh, you know, refurbished or something that would just be a disclaimer on it. And so Titleist did not like that. And they sued our client and we had a big battle. And it, uh, interesting enough, it went all the way. You're, you're a lawyer, you know this. It went all the way to the Eleventh Circuit, which is just one wow. row below yeah. the um, one row below the uh, Supreme Court. And the court said that it was fair game for uh, our client to restamp Titleist on the ball and uh, sell it as a refurbished ball. Wow. So there was antitrust issues involved in it, but uh, the IP case kind of drove it. But you know, that's my one big golf antitrust experience. Cool. Cool. Um... And, uh, and, you know, the tour has had their run-ins with um, legal stuff before. I mean, you probably remember the ping I too and the square grooves and everything. And I've always sort of felt um, the tour is a little gun shy after that. I, I, I mean, this is different, obviously, in the live thing, but you know, just thinking about it as I'm listening to you, I mean, the whole distance thing with the golf ball, I mean, the, the PGA tour and the USGA uh, in particular, have spent all this time studying it and studying it and studying it. You know, meantime, we sit here and watch golf courses get bigger and bigger, at least if they're going to challenge, you know, for the tour, um, uh, have tour events on it. And it's just always interesting to me why it's taking so long for the tour to do something. And, you know, it seems to me, I mean, none of this is easy, I know, but, you know, you could roll back the golf ball I mean, that's what Nicholas has talked about forever and just going to have, you know, just like we don't have aluminum bats in the major leagues, they would kill, you know, with those guys, they'd kill someone with an aluminum bat. They hit the ball so hard, you know, but we have aluminum bats all the way up through the minor leagues. You know, you I've always wondered why they couldn't do with the golf ball, but um, things move slowly in golf. Um, and maybe that's a good way to sort of, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to note that. I mean, those are a lot of antitrust issues there. Like if you yes, have EPA yes. as a standard yes. setting body, you know, exactly. saying, oh, Pilots can't sell this ball, but Callaway can. Uh, right. Then you have these uh, companies with teams of antitrust lawyers that will sue you. And so makes it tough. It does for sure. Um, and um, so let, let's sort of get, get into this a little bit. And, you know, I'll warn listeners that, you know, um, uh, poor Craig is going to have to be the antitrust guy explaining it to a tax lawyer um, <laughs> but uh, and our listeners. But I want to sort of kind of go brick by brick and try to do this in bite-sized pieces so we can make an understanding. Because, you know, as, as Craig and I were chatting a little bit before we got started today, um, you know, antitrust is complicated enough, but this particular antitrust case has got a lot of subtleties and stuff. It's 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 not your run of the mill antitrust case just because of the facts and the claims and stuff. But maybe just to get started a little bit and talk a little about the structure of the PGA Tour um, so that folks understand it, um, because it's different animal than our other sports leagues. You know, we think of you know, the NFL, we're getting ready for football or the NBA or Major League Baseball, and you've got teams owned by owners and you've kind of, the you know, 
I always think of, you know, owners versus players, right? And we can think back to Kurt Flood for the major league and challenging the reserve clause and all that stuff. But there were kind of two sides there. Um, and whereas the PGA Tour is kind of a member association. I mean, it's an amalgamation of the players and the players actually, you know, qualify for it and join it and sign on. And, and the PGA Tour just kind of what they do is they, you know, the players run it, you know, they have a commission, of course, and a huge administrative staff down in Ponte Vedra, but it's, it's, it's an amalgamation of the players and they kind of, you know, the tours value, I think is, you know, they pool the media rights of all the players and they bundle them together and they, they go to sponsors and they say, Hey, you know, we've got these 200 players, we've got all these exclusive rights for them. And, you know, UCBS, NBC, ESPN, want to pay us all this money and and we're going to protect you because we've got, you know, they can't just go off and sell their media rights independently. They can't, you know, go play in conflicting events, you know, and, and so if you are without a, without a release, at least. So, I mean, if you're going to sign on to, um, you know, uh, uh, televising our thing, you know, we can bring these guys to you and we can promise you, you're not going to have them, you know, turning up in another tournament while you're televising, you know, the St. Jude classic or something. Is that kind of a fair thumbnail of uh, how the tour works? I think that's my understanding. I've been listening to Davis Love a lot the last week. Yeah. Uh, you and I were talking about that before. Yeah. And I think he's making the point that it's a players organizations. The rules are the players rules. They write them and they enforce them, uh, which I think is uh, a good point. And it's not something that I think gets a lot of press, but I think that's a that's a pretty important point that it's a really a player's organization and they hire administrators uh, like the commissioner and everybody else to, to enforce the rules that they come up with. Right, exactly. And, and, and I agree. I've been listening to him as well as you and I were chatting about. It. And so um, it is different in that sense than the other leagues. So we've got the PGA Tour. We've got other tours um like the what i would call the european tour i guess it's called the dp world tour now um and that's going to get relevant as we get into you know some of these claims and then of course you know and this is an odd thing again for people who aren't golfers uh, we've got the four majors which you know um and i say odd because they're totally independent at least structurally and we'll get into some of the stuff that's been alleged here but you know independent of the pga tour of course it's the masters the pga the u.s open the british open each one of those four tournaments are run by their own organization um and uh and they're one-offs i mean you know the masters just has the masters in terms of male pro golfers the PGA, which of course, you know, has a huge organization with club pros, but in terms of for the the tour players, it's that one tournament. USGA conducts a lot of things, but again, for the male pro tours, it's the US Open and the RNA, the British Open. So we've got these four organizations running these four majors with their own sets of rules for qualifying. Um, and um, and people are now starting to learn about this animal called the official world golf rankings, which is going to get a lot of play i think in this but um that's kind of another interesting part of it right i mean they really are independent at least in structure from the pga tour yeah i think that's a point that i've been focused on for a long time it's uh and let's maybe just jump into the allegations so one of yeah. the allegations is that um uh, the PGA Tour is a monopsonist, not a monopolist a monopsonist right. meaning they are a power buyer of elite golf services 
And so that's um, it's 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 always struck me as interesting that you're trying to make a monopoly allegation or a monopsony allegation against the PGA Tour when the four biggest tournaments of the year they don't control. It'd be like saying that Facebook's a monopolist, uh, but they don't sell in California, Texas, Pennsylvania, New York. Well, that (laughs) doesn't make sense. How can you be a monopolist if you don't sell in the four biggest states? And so I think that's always been a really strong argument for the tour to say, how the heck can we be a monopolist? The four biggest tournaments of the year, we don't even control. And I think that has some merit to it. Um, I, I just think that's a pretty good thing. And now, it, the the um, the live players talk about it in their complaint, and uh, they go to some length to say, well, they're not really in the market. They're kind of complement, and the PJ Tour works around them. Uh, and I think a lot of strained allegations to try to say they're not really in the market because I just don't see you can have a market for elite golf services and not include the majors. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So let's, um, and that's a good way to sort of get into this. So let's go into kind of the law here um and there's kind of again broadly speaking i'm going to leave off the state stuff and focus on the sherman act federal stuff you know uh there's sort of you know two different claims um and and again for my dusty rusty history of 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 antitrust law i mean this kind of brings back a few memories only been 40 years for me but you know there's there's section one which kind of deals with multilateral stuff. We'll get into that in a little bit. And then there's section two, which well, let's talk about that first, because you've kind of sort of started to get into that, which is unilateral anti-competitive conduct by dominant firms. So there's sort of two, as I understand it, um, and I'm going to count on you to correct me if I go off the fairway on any of the stuff, but there's sort of two elements, if you will, that you have to show, as I understand it, for a section two claim one is that you've got monopoly power and, um, you know, and just we've used the term, I've used the term monopsonist versus monopoly. We're, we're, we'll stick with monopoly just because it's easier to yeah. say. But, I you know, agree. just just, you know, just for people who are listening to this, you know, typically when you think about a monopoly, I'm going to sort of dumb it down, which I need to do for me. You know, you think of seller market power. So, you know, if you have um you know, um, you know, Staples, I'm thinking of that, that famous case with Office Depot and stuff. Yeah. you know, yeah. if you're in the, if, if you're, if you're thinking of the market for selling office products, and let's just say that's the sell. Well, you know, there's Staples, there's Office Max, there's, you know, the various ones. And so you think of, well, is Staples a monopoly? You know, what is their share of that? And you debate about what the market is and everything, but that's on the sell side. This is on the buy side, right? So this is sort of a, and you, you, pointed it out it's the market of services of pro golfers in elite events so there you know the peep the pj tour is a buyer of those services so people but we're, we'll stick with monopoly anyways so so um the, the question is you know is the pj tour a monopolist in that market um of buying services of pro golfers in elite events that's one thing you'd have to show right and the other one is that their conduct, if they are monopolists, is, I guess, exclusionary or anti-competitive. So let's start with the first element, because you touched on that, because I would think that's the best argument the tour has. Um, And you've touched on one part of that argument, which is, hey, you know, the majors are totally different. They're the foremost important tournaments, um, 
and the PGA Tour not only doesn't control them, they, they, they can't have any say in that. So, I mean, it's totally independent PGA Tour. So how could they be a monopoly? That's certainly, and I agree with you, that's a really good argument. Another one, though, I would think, and curious kind of you think about it, is, hey, I mean, look at all the success that Liv has had. I mean, if we were really a monopoly, you know, I mean, we'd be crushing these guys. I mean, you know, and look at all the players they've signed in six months and everything like that. And, and heck, you know, if part of being monopolies, you control pricing, right? So, you know, we're sitting here having to goose up, you know, these, um, you know, the, the Genesis that Woods has, you know, and the Arnold Palmer and goosing up the purses, the PJ tours, you know, responded by goosing up the purses and they say, we're paying more money to compete with these guys. How could we be a monopoly? If we were a monopoly, wouldn't be con- we'd be controlling the price, right? Yeah, I've been saying for a while that uh, monopoly power, its real essence is the power to exclude. Right. It's either one or two things. Either the PGA Tour doesn't have the power or it's really crappy at exercising its power, <laughs> right? Uh, because... And and this became a big issue in the hearing last week because the court really seized upon the, actually it was a live player's expert witnesses testimony, Yes, uh, which said, look, the live tour has grown from zero to 20%. Well, heck, that's only been in what, a couple months. And uh, the court said, well, that's uh, problematic for antitrust claims because, you know, the faster you're growing, the better you are and the less the chance the PJ tour is a monopolist. And, it's kind of this funny dichotomy in antitrust cases. It's uh, it's always the good news for the antitrust case tends to be bad news for the business side. So the good news for the PJ Tours antitrust cases, they've lost 20% market share and probably going to lose more players in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so that's good for the antitrust case, but that's bad if you're the commissioner of the, P, uh, the PJ Tour and right. want to have all your stars and control them. So it's uh, it's always this kind of strange dichotomy in these antitrust cases. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, and again, just to sort of for people listening, I mean, we're really at the top of the first inning here. I mean, this is going to be a long slog. And, you know, the hearing last week was interesting because it was on, you know, injunctive relief for the three named players to play in the FedEx Cup. Um, and there's a lot of aspects. We, we won't really get into that because it's kind of in the rearview mirror at this point. But yeah. Larry, I, I, I hate to interrupt, but there's one yeah. thing that uh, I've had a lot of people ask me. Uh, Please, go ahead. Clear up some of the confusion. Yeah. There's only one lawsuit, okay? 11 players have filed one lawsuit. Some people think, and I've seen this in the press, so there's two suits, but there's really one, one. lawsuit, 11 right. players. But three of the players, as the case just started, asked for what we call a temporary restraining order. Right. And that was the hearing last week. But it's all the part of the one case. It just happened that three people filed this motion. And what they were trying to get the court to do was to allow them, because those three had qualified uh, to play in the FedEx Cup. And they wanted the, the permission uh, of the court to play in the FedEx Cup because the PGA Tour said, you guys are banned, you're suspended, we don't want you showing up. And so that was it. But it, it, it's just really important to say this is one yeah. case because I've heard a lot of people be confused about it. And I, I totally get that. One thing that's interesting, apparently seven of the 11 had qualified for the FedEx Cup. So it was really interesting that just three filed the the, the TRO, which um, is kind of interesting fact. Very interesting. And, you know, Carlos Ortiz dropped out of the case. He was one of the original. I mean, I think there's a lot of 
kind of interesting things of who's sort of, you know, put their name on it. Phil being Phil. You know, hey, on that, hey, yeah. On that point, and this goes back to my, 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 my old antitrust case against uh, Titleist. One of the things yeah. I find, and I, 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 no one's answered this question. It's, uh, it's really interesting. The CEO of Titleist at the time was this guy, Wally Uline. Uh, yeah, longtime and, CEO. And his yeah, son is one really, of the main defendants. Yeah, so it's yes. <laughs> Who could be tighter with the PGA Tour than Titleist? And so I the know. fact that his son is one of the plaintiffs yeah. is the one thing. And maybe I'm the only person that uh, has head No, I noticed that. I mean, Peter Uline was a really good player. I mean, he had a good amateur degree. He hasn't really made it you know, on the PGA tour in any big way, but he's been, you know, it's so, as you know, as a golfer, it's so hard, so competitive, but I noticed that because Wally Uline was there forever at Titleist. I mean, he was like, he kind of made the modern Titleist. I mean, you know, I mean, just to fly, I mean, I go back, you know, to the day I used to love Ben Hogan clubs, you know, I go back to the days of Spalding and top flight and, you know, there was a lot of different things and Titleist, you know, kind of was one of the survivors, um, along with Callaway and and obviously to, uh, Taylor made and stuff, but you know it's gotten a lot shrunk a lot on the equipment side from what it was 20, 30 years ago. And Wally Wally Uline, by all accounts, you know, there's spoke lots of credit for that. And here's his son, you know, one of the name thing. I I, I totally agree. I thought that was super interesting. Um, yeah. But 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 one of the things um, you know uh, about the TRO, as you know, and you know, it, it's because it, everyone sort of want. In, in our instant culture, right, everyone wants to sort of say, okay, who's the winner? You know, what's happening? You know, what can we tell? And, you know, this is like, I, I heard one guy sort of said, you know, it's a 72 hole turn event. And, you know, the, the tour got up and down for par in the first hole. Um, you know, it's a long slog. And there's a lot, uh, as you well know, you know, for injunctive relief, I mean, you know, there's exigencies, there's lots of stuff you have to show. So, I, I think we need to sort of put a little caution light for people reading too much into, you know, just because the injunctive relief, you know, has, has failed that the tour is going to win. Having said sure, that, what's but... interesting to me is it, in the tour, in the and, and I've, maybe you can talk a little about this, is in the tour's response to the TRO. So just again, so again, set the table for people, you know, the um, live is the, 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 the plaintiffs have filed this, 105 six page complaint it's long um the tour hasn't i don't think responded to that complaint they responded to the tro in a short i was like 15 ish pages 20 whatever it was short, much shorter and of course they're focused on the tro but as, as part of that they kind of got in a little bit into the substance as well and you can kind of see in a brief way the outline of sort of what it looks like their arguments are going to be on, on, on the merits of these section two and section one claims. But we really don't know the full thing until we see a full answer, right, from them? That's correct. Yeah, we'll see that uh, another few weeks, I would think. Right. And so but on, but just to go back to the section two claim. So, yeah, I would think, you know, between not being independent of the majors and, and your your great point about the good news, bad news, <laughs> I trust Kate, that, you know, they've gotten 20 percent that. I mean, what's your sort of sense? That seems like a pretty strong argument, no, in terms of not being a monopolist? Yeah, I think it's a very strong argument for the tour. The The fact that, um, let me flip it the other way. If I were representing a plaintiff, you want a plaintiff that's been injured, that's on its last breath or going out of business. And uh, here it's just the op opposite. You have uh, a plaintiff, many plaintiffs because it's the players, 
but Liv too, where 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 they are succeeding. They have had look, they've gotten top players, right? They've got Dustin Johnson, they got Bryson Shampo. Right. They 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 are battling successfully for the talent, right? Again, this is a monopsony case. It's the acquisition of talent. They've got right. talent. They've run tournaments. They got David Faraday to come over to right. run uh, be the commentator. So they have done an incredible job in the last few months entering this elite golf market. And so that's a really good fact for the PGA Tour. Again, good fact from the antitrust perspective, bad fact from the I'm the commissioner and want to make a lot of money perspective. I agree. Let me ask you one minor thing, and I can't remember where I saw this, or maybe I'm dreaming, but, but you know, is there anything that Liv can sort of say that, gee, you know, yes, we've gained this market share, and yes, 20% in six months, but it's cost us dearly. Um, and, you know, we would not have had to shell out this amount of money if you PGA Tour weren't you know, putting lifetime suspensions on for these people. So we're damaged by your conduct here. I mean, is there anything to that at all on the live side? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something. I, it's undercut by the fact that they have, uh, seems like an unlimited bank account to spend on players. So it makes it, they're the unusual new entrant. Usually should be dealing with companies that are underfunded, that, you know, the big competitor just crushes them. And that's not the situation in this antitrust case. You've got, you know, a upstart that's succeeding that has uh, really well bankrolled. And so I think it makes it tougher. I do think the one point that they have, the players have, is this whole notion of the players and the PGA Tour talking about their players being independent contractors, right? It, so you look at the, the monopoly case is really focused on uh, two rules, the media rights rule, the conflicting events rule. And in right. substance, but it basically says that the PGA Tour is playing you can't be playing on anywhere else, right. uh, basically worldwide. So, right. uh, and if your players are like, well, of course, the PGA Tour seems to be on 52 weeks a year, so that really is a pretty uh, right. overbroad policy. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I think they have a point to say. Uh, you told us we're independent contractors. What part of independent uh, are you not understanding? If I want to play in a different tournament, I should be able to do it. And these rules are preventing me from doing it. And it's unfair that you are. Uh, banning me from the PGA Tour just because I want to be independent. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I, I this is where I I mean, it's all interesting to me, but this is where I kind of scratch my head a little bit. So so let's just make believe that we that the that the uh, plaintiffs got over the monopoly power part on the Section two claim. Um, and so now we're talking about the conduct and you rightly point out the two regs that are being regulations that are being applied um, by the tour, um, and in effect, exactly as you said, because they're on so much during the year, they're basically preventing you or able to prevent you from playing anywhere else. So the tour talks about this being, well, look, these are our rules. This is what we need to sort of create our product. And by the way, there's no non-compete here. If you want to leave, and go play their Godspeed. I mean, we hope you don't, but I mean, you know, there's nothing, you know, we think about the classic and I mean, I'm out here in California in Silicon Valley, you know, the non, you know, the non-competes with, you know, and that gets litigated so often in California. Um, that's not what this is. You, you are free to leave and, you know, you're free to go there. It's just that it's an exclusive services contract. If you're going to be here, the services have to be exclusive to us. Um, but if you want to leave, leave. 
how does that, how does antitrust view that? I mean, is that sort of um, cut mustard or not? Just how, how do you think about that in an antitrust world? Yeah, I think uh, I've heard some people also say that, uh, you know, along the lines of what you were saying with the PGA Tour, you know, it's important to have these rules because at the FedEx Cup, we really want our stars. We don't want Rory to say, I'm going to skip this week and right. go play somewhere else. And if you're FedEx, you're saying, I'm paying all this money. I want to make right. sure that your stars are showing up. So these rules are reasonably related to making sure our stars uh, show up. And so I think that's a, that's a pretty good argument. Um, you know, and then um, the antitrust cases are largely, and I tell my clients this, about the documents. So what is really behind these rules and what the PGA Tour has been doing the last few months? Is it to say, we just need to protect our our, our sponsors like FedEx along the way I was just saying it, or we got to enforce these rules to cut this live uh, group down and not let them succeed. And so that's why the antitrust lawyers spend lots of times looking at WeChat, email, uh, text, uh, it's uh, its a very intensive document-driven practice. And that's why I think discovery in this case is going to be uh, pretty overwhelming uh, on both sides. So it sounds like motive then becomes important, if I, as I'm hearing you, that, you mm -hmm. know, you it's not necessarily, you know, you could objectively say, well, look, and, and I think it's fair to objectively say, look, the conflicting event rule, the media rights rule, that's part of what we need for our product, you know, to protect our sponsors, to be able to maximize the value that a FedEx pays us, that a CBS TV pays us and everything, as you just said. But it sounds like what you're saying is that, OK, well, that may be objectively true. But if we're going to unearth a bunch of documents, text, emails, whatever, that says something to the effect of what we got to sort of, you know, enforce these to the teeth because otherwise live is going to succeed. Um, that could be problematic because it shows motive, it sounds like. So the government right now, the Federal Trade Commission is suing Facebook uh, for an antitrust monopolization case. And you look at the complaint, they cite a number of Mark Zuckerberg emails. And it's interesting there, they're going after Facebook saying that some of the acquisitions, say of Instagram, uh, WeChat were illegal. We should never let those go through. And there's a famous email in the complaint from Mark Zuckerberg when he said, it's a lot cheaper for us to buy Instagram now than have to compete against them in the future. So there is a perfect email yeah. of summarizing what's going on. So it's just, I'm always, every antitrust case has seems to have uh, some documents uh, that uh, are really important to the case. So we'll see uh, what gets um, produced. For sure. Um, got it. Um, so it's going to be interesting because I could, well, it, this part may be somewhat academic because it sounds, I mean, I kind of agree with you. I think on the Section 2 claim, if they defeat the Monopoly Power 1, then, you know, that's the end of the Section 2 claim. Um, but but some of these, I can imagine there's going to be emails and stuff that are not going to paint the tour in a pretty picture. Um, so we'll have to not sort to of jump see. Not ahead to the Section 1 claims, but I think that's where these emails are going to come in. What Texts were yeah, so let's get the masters, right. and I think that's going to be the really interesting. Yeah, thing. so let's. I agree with you. I mean, as I read through this the last week, um, uh, to try to get ready to not embarrass myself with you, um, I, I, um, my takeaway was exactly where you're going. I mean, the section one seemed much more powerful because I think the section two, I think monopoly power with the success lives has going to be hard to argue. So, again, so let's just just to reset it, we'll get into the section one. So we've been talking about section two, and that's really unilateral 
conduct by the tour. And that's what we've been talking about. Now let's sort of cross over into section one, which is more about multilateral stuff. So what is that? Again, to sort of put it in things people have seen, may have seen, you know, bid rigging, cartels. This is where you've got entrance in a market. Um, and I'll go back to my, I don't know why I started with Staples, but I'll go back to my Staples. You know, if Staples, Office Max, and whatever the next one, and, you know, the three of them had agreed, hey, we're going to carve up the market this way. And we had all this, you know, agreement among horizontal competitors. Well, that's a section one type claim. Um, and that's kind of interesting because that's where I sort of see a lot of um, both. I saw a lot of the complaint talk about that. And again, my takeaway with, with you know, acknowledging that this tours TRO response was, you know, just kind of lightly touched the merits. It didn't sort of dive into it. We'll see that, as you pointed out, when they respond in full to the complaint. But from the little they put in there, the section one didn't seem nearly as compelling from the tours point of view as a defense as the section two. So let's talk about that because we've got, again, just to remind people of the players here, because we're talking about horizontal people that are competitors, you know, coordinating, however you want to do, we've got the DP world tour and we've got the four majors. So talk about kind of where the tour gets in trouble potentially if there's coordination communication among those various folks. Yeah, let's start with the DP tour. I'll call it the European tour because that's yeah, how I good because that's how I so, think of it. I don't, I don't know, know who DP is. But I, I, I don't. don't I don't either. So we're on the same page. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the European <laughs> tour. So it's interesting. From the time this started, I've been wondering what their reaction would be. You and I seem about the same age. I remember when the European tour was strong and you had Fado and yes. Sevi, yeah. you know these players didn't come to the United States, and it was a almost a co-equal tour to the yes. so you look at it, the the European tour a year or two ago and you say what do they need they need money and they need stars right and what does the live tour have they have lots of money and they have stars so yeah. I always thought boy it's going to be interesting to see what the European tour does because it seems kind of natural that they would go with live uh and they'd be kind of relegated as a stepsister of the PGA Tour, it seems like. Um, and so it was uncertain what they were going to do until, I guess, uh, early this summer. And they yes. seemed to have fallen lockstep with the uh, PGA Tour and having the suspensions and kind of co-equal treatment. Now, that's all right if it's both come, both tours doing it independently. They can each independently reach their own conclusion. I guess from the antitrust perspective, asking, well, was there any communications? Who, what was being said between the tour? Was there coordination? Was there a tacit agreement? It doesn't have to be a written agreement. It just has to be a, a, neak, a wink and a nod uh, between the two. So I think there's going to be a lot of discovery. I thought in the complaint, there was some uh, pretty good evidence. There was notes of meetings where it, at least the European tour was interested in talking to the live tour, but they were referencing the fact that you know, the uh, PGA Tour had a lot of power and that made them nervous. Um, so, like I said, they have at least done the same equal things. It seems like the PGA Tour is doing, whether that's coordinating or not, they're going to have to discover that in this uh, litigation. Taking a step further, one issue that I'm particularly focused on from the antitrust perspective is, so it's not just you have these two entities. It's now the PGA Tour has taken a 40% interest. Right. There's in a form. Yeah. Just, just interjects for people know, and I, I want to hear what you have to say on this, but there is a formal alliance. I mean, a lot of this, 
you're talking about documentation and, you know, we're going to discover emails and stuff, but, and, and that'll be relevant for motive and other things, but there's an actual formalization as the Alliance, which I want you to go talk about now, but, but that was, I think early, as you said earlier this summer. So this is like hiding in plain sight. They're actually locking arms, right? <laughs> yeah. It's uh, they had a, some, a looser relationship. And I think on some of the media stuff, they had a more relationship, but now it's a pretty formal relationship as I understand it, I think the tour is going to take 40% interest in right. the uh, European tour. And they're sort of relegated to as a feeder tour. I mean, I don't mean to insult them, but it seems like that's really the PGA Tour's view. And I've and what I say is, what other industry? I mean, Boeing can't buy 40% of Airbus. Coke can't buy 40% of Pepsi and say, okay, you're going to be the second brand of uh, cola products. And so that's always struck me as an odd thing. If it, but I guess the question is, are they in the same relevant antitrust market? And I, it's hard for me to say they're not. Um, not to get too far in the weeds, but this was sort of an issue last week in, in the hearing because for whatever reason, the live players alleged that it was a U.S. market. And of course, the European tour doesn't have events here in the U.S. market. And so the court said when she was looking at one of the things they have to do in a TRO is uh, give an evaluation of the merits and say, do you have a substantial likelihood of success in the merits? And she had some concerns. She said, I understand you're alleging potentially a conspiracy with the European tour, but you've alleged a U.S. market and they're not in the U.S. market. So I don't think this is per se, it may be rule of reason. Uh, but it's not uh, something I think that's a per se allegation. They're on the same market. So I don't really understand why they allege just a U.S. market. But from my perspective, it seems like they're the two biggest tours out there that are in this elite services of providing golf uh, to, to, to the people like you and me. So uh, that's why I say I think that's a tough thing for the PGA Tour to say, oh, yeah, no problem. Us buying 40 percent. I, I think the regulators are going to have some issues with that. And uh, it just seems weird to me uh, as an antitrust lawyer that one competitor could buy 40% of another one and everybody's like, eh, no big deal. I agree. Let's take a slight detour because you mentioned this and I and I failed to when we were talking about section one. So section one, which is these, again, multilateral, you know, things, you've got people agreeing in some, whether it's tacit or formal or whatever, there's per se things that are illegal that if you're doing them, boom, it's the end of the story. And there's other things that aren't per se that are what it's called, as you said, you know, a rule of reason, which means, well, we're going to sort of, you know, weigh things and decide. So that those are both those are two different. You can have something that's one or the other in section one. What what so what makes something that would be relevant in this case? What's a per se violation versus something that's rule of reason? So what's that's yeah, I think great summary. You're, you're Larry, a tax lawyer. I'm impressed. That's really good. Um, so what per se we we the, the the Supreme Court has said that we're only going to apply the per se rule to things that we know are inherently anti-competitive. So like uh, bid rigging, like price fixing, like geographic market division. So like someone said, I'll take west of the Mississippi, you take east of the Mississippi. Those kind of what we call hardcore offenses. And if it doesn't fit within one of those categories, then it's a rule of reason, which means 
Um, you have to balance. You look at the anti-competitive aspect, but maybe look at some of the pro-competitive things, kind of like what we were talking about with some of these rules. That, you know, there could be some anti-competitive aspects, but there's some pro-competitive things. Uh, and so you do a balancing test at the end of the day to figure out whether it's legal or not. Clearly representing a defendant, you definitely want the rule of reason standard to apply rather than the per se standard. Because once you get in per se, it's really, there's really no defense. It's hard to, uh, it's hard uh, if they show an agreement, uh, um, there's not, a, the court doesn't say, let's look at the effects of this. It's just condemned as per se illegal. That's the right. term per se. Right. And so, and you were saying, so the fact that they bought 40% of a competitor i mean again this depends on what the market is as you were saying but i mean normally if we were in a normal antitrust case and you know again i don't know why if staples bought 40 percent of home depot yeah. you would sort of say that would raise an alarm bell right yeah <laughs> and, and to take it a step further uh you know it's it's i keep seeing these articles that says oh it's time now for the pj tour and live to make peace well, I don't know how that's going to happen under the antitrust laws either. You can't just take the genie out of the bottle and create this competitor and say, oh, it's a pain to have this competitor. So let's uh, have a joint live PGA tour. That's going to create antitrust issues, too. You just can't come with that resolution. Oh, for sure. And we're going to get that in a minute because I definitely want to talk about remedies. But just to finish off sort of the, the section one stuff. So th for sure, the deep, the Euro tour, I'm going to use that term, too. I mean, that that. I agree with you. I mean, yeah, and, and and you know this better than I do. You can always define markets narrowly enough so that two people aren't competitors because they're in different markets. But I'm I'm where you are, I think, or at least that's my kind of initial reaction. I, God, I would think they're competitors. I mean, the, you know, particularly that you've got all these players. I mean, Rory, all these other players are play sort of worldwide. The other aspect of this, and boy, this is going to be so interesting in discovery uh, from my standpoint, just as a call person who's interested in this, is the four majors. Um, and so, you know, Augusta is a famously, you know, the chairman, it's it's a it's an absolute monarchy, um, so to speak. I mean, Fred Ridley. Run, who's now the chairman runs the show um and and so he speaks for the club you know no one else can speak for the club so you've got fred ridley there you've got um seth wah who's the you know executive former deutsche bank executive that runs the pga tour um you've got mike wan who um you know is relatively new but you know longtime lpga commissioner at the usga you've got martin slumber at the rna so you know you've got these four organizations with you know four folks that are very closely identified as spokespeople for these you know i mean it'd be, it's hard to sort of say i guess where i'm going with this hard to sort of say if there's a text from mike wan or Fred, well, he's not really speaking for them. I mean, those are the guys that are identified with these four organizations. So now we get into the this part of the Section 1 claim. So if there's interchange, whether it's documentation, emails, text, whatever, between, on the one hand, um, Jay Monahan from the PGA Tour, and on the other hand, you know, any of these other four guys talking about live and the need to sort of shut down live or stuff, it's going to be problematic, right? Yeah, I just think about the two uh, extremes. Uh, the one thing that would be uh, really problematic, think about the scenario of all the four majors plus the PGA Tour getting in a smoke-filled room and saying, we need to stop this live. Let's all get together and we're not going to let them on the tour and you, the masters, aren't. And they say, yes, that's right. And the UJ, we're not going to let them. Everybody agrees to it. So that's a big problem. 
What would be okay is if just everybody independently decided we don't like live, we're not going to let them play. My guess is we're somewhere in the in middle. Between, and right. what kind of communications and what kind of prompting and, hey, wouldn't it be great masters if you didn't let these guys play? You know, we're all partners, the PGA Tour, and that'd be great. And, you know, how they react to something like that, I don't know. I also think it's interesting. We talked about the absence. It's it's interesting in the complaint that they seem to really focus on the PGA and the Masters and not as much on the RNA and the USGA. So I, I'm not sure exactly what's going on, maybe because it's open and has open qualifying and maybe that puts it in a different category than the other two. But, uh, you know, the PGA and the Ryder Cup uh, and the Masters, it just seemed to be that was the focus of the allegations and the player suit more than the RNA and the USGA. Yeah, I find that interesting, too, because the Masters is different. I mean, it's an invitational. Yes, they have their, you know, um, stated qualifications and stuff, but but um, it's an invitational. And whereas the U.S. Open and the British Open, as the name implies, is open. I mean, they have qualifications, too. But, you know, famously, anybody, you know, I mean, if you're a low enough handicap, can try for the U.S. Open. Um, so it is I noticed that that was sort of interesting to me that they're sort of um they focused on that so where do you so so and you're right we need to see how all this discovery is going to shake out and everything but sort of what do you do if you're the pga tour and let's just say it is in the middle let's just say you know we can't say this is totally parallel conduct you know to your one extreme because there is this interplay messages between them not as not as dire as your you know the other extreme. This is smoke filled room somewhere in between. What does the PGA Tour argue to prevail on this? Do they sort of go back and say, hey, you know, we, there are these pro competitive justifications? I mean, what do you argue um, when you've got these facts that are going to at least suggest some some degree of of I'm trying I'm trying to be careful with my words here some degree of you know interaction among you know monahan on the one hand these other ones what is there a, a legal argument you make what do you argue if you're the tour in that situation two words no agreement that's the core of this claim so you could say we talked about it and sure we may have had a cocktail talked about it but i would we weren't reaching agreement i may have said pga tour is going to come tough on these people and they may say well we're looking into it but we talked about it, but no agreement. I mean, that's the big defense. You have to show no agreement. So that would be what they're going to say. And then you saw in the PGA Tours filing uh, where they were trying to talk about the untruths of the live players. They That theme was coming through that they said, you know, we didn't reach an agreement with the DP Tour. We didn't reach an agreement with the Masters. No agreement. But as you sort of said, and you know, tacit agreement is still agreement, but I mean, you know, as you noted earlier, I mean, there doesn't need to be a formal agreement. I mean, you know, and and I, I you would know boy better than I do, but I'm sure there must be cases where there's kind of a wink and a nod and, you know, it's not an enforceable contract, but you kind of, a, a courts must sometimes say, hey, you know what, there's enough here. You kind of knew what this guy wanted and you were sort of, you know, winking your eye here and stuff. So, because it can be tacit, right? Right. And so an important thing is in our and the antitrust laws, parallel conduct's not enough. You have to have parallel conduct plus something else. And by parallel conduct, I mean we're banning them, the European poor is banning them. Just that fact alone is not enough for conspiracy. There's got to be something more. And so that's why we have juries. That's the, the role of the jury to be the pack fact finder if there's something more. And it's got to be substantially more. And let this let, let the fact finder decide. Wow. 
So this seems, and and I take it you sort of agree that this is where there's more from live standpoint. This is more fruitful ground than the section two stuff. It sounds that's at least my what I'm hearing. That's yeah, that's been my position for a while. I think that's harder to defend the section one because you don't have to worry about market share. You don't have to worry about uh, monopoly power. It's is there an agreement, and was I harmed because of that agreement? So let's talk about the harm aspect and maybe get into the remedies a little bit. So let's sort of, um, what what would be the harm that Liv would allege? Because we were talking about how successful they've been, but they would say, hey, you know what, I would my is my harm that I wouldn't have had to spend this much money to sign all these players if you guys, you know, because, because by doing this, you know, I've had to compensate these players for the possibility of, you know, not playing in the majors or whatever. I mean, is that kind of what the harm would be or what would they argue the harm is? So I think your question is really revealing because uh, it comes from a perspective I have. You asked about live. Of course, this is the players that have filed suit, not live. And when yeah, I, I know, I have to keep it right. Yeah, and right. I, had to, I read the complaint because that allegation was in the complaint, and I thought when I first read it, I'm like, wait, wait, this is live. So you're this? right. You're the right. But oh my god, it's the players. So yeah, that's a harm of live. So, but that's that. But you're raising a great question because when the TRO came, you had to show irreparable harm, meaning really high standard of harm that you can't right. just compensate them with my money. And the court said, look, you players, the allegation is that live overpaid you guys to get you to jump ship. So again, as a plaintiff, you normally want to show that your client is harmed here. They've literally alleged, and now their expert has said, these guys were overpaid to jump ship. So I think damages is going to be really hard when you show that. So I, when I read the complaint, I thought, this sounds like it was written more by Liv than the yes, player. Yes, and so, yes. Uh, and again, like I said, I got halfway through it. I'm like, wait, wait, who's the plaintiff here? It's, it seems like it's, uh, it seemed like, a, you know, like, for instance, they were complaining about like uh, uh, the tent providers to the PGA Tour were shunning Liv. I'm like, right. what, what does that have to do with about the player? The provider? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, uh, That's a, a great point because you're right because I saw that in the complaint that Liv had to shell out more money for others. But you're right; they're not the plaintiff. I mean, it's it's that's really interesting. I mean, I hadn't focused on that, but you're right. I mean, and the players have been enriched. Um, yeah. So I mean, so at the end of the day, is that going to be a big hurdle for the players to 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 prevail? Even if, and again, I know it's totally different facts, but I I I just remember this, the NFL USFL case where, you know, there's a violation, but there was like no damages. I mean, right. I know totally different reasons, but I mean, is that going to end up being a hurdle? Sounds like a hurdle for the players. If they, what are the damages? Yeah. So they've asked for some monetary relief, as I understand it, and then non-monetary relief, like they want to play. And so on the, you really have to show your harm to collect damages and on the non-monetary relief, it's a little lighter, but again, I think, in terms of standing, but and, and if you're not damaged, it's a tough place to be if you're a plaintiff. I mean, your complaint is saying you've been over enriched to jump ship. That right. is not your typical antitrust case. <laughs> not your typical antitrust. No, that's a great point. That's so interesting. Um, and so that's kinda, what you them yeah. last week, right? That's what the judge said. Yes. No, Judge Freeman was. She was all over that. You're. 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 You're right. Yeah. And boy, was she fantastic. I mean, yeah, she. She was. Both sides. A fair shake. You couldn't leave that courtroom saying this judge. I mean, she is super smart. She, yeah, she uh, is. Gave everybody the say that they wanted to say. Uh, you know what I love as a lawyer, Larry? She yeah. said, doesn't read footnotes. Someone yes. Made, and she's <laughs> I'm like, I love her. No she's, she's actually, and just again, this is, you know, 
I, I think the number of people listening to this that litigate in the Northern District of California is probably a null set. But I mean, for people who don't know her, I mean, she's famous for that. I mean, I'm sitting here in California. I'm not a litigator. I'm not even a lawyer anymore. But I mean, but but yeah, she's famous for that. Um, and and she reiterated that. I know I'm with you. I just I mean, lawyers, unfortunately, from their law review days are like trained to sort of swim in footnotes. And you got to love someone who just says, you know what? Put it in the body. I, I agree. Um, so, this, uh, hey, she, Larry, I was just going to mention this one thing yeah. she wrote, which I almost thought was poetic. Yeah. She said, if live golf is elite golf's future, what do PRO plaintiffs care about the de- the collection of trophies from a bygone era? Right. Right. <laughs> that it, was no, so good. It, it, exactly. So, so where do we? You know, if dam- money damages are going to be hard to show because uh, they've been enriched. Um, and non-monetary, what's the, I'm just trying to see how this plays out. Um, We want to play in both tours. Yeah, we want to play in both. So so literally they would have to force them to sort of allow them to sort of play on the PGA, which is what they're essentially claiming that they want. Right. You know, it's interesting. It wasn't part of her opinion, but I watched the hearing. And one thing that really I could see she was thinking about was the notion if she let these players play, that they were going to show up. And I thought this was a great argument by the PGA tour. They were going to show up wearing their shirts with live golf yes. and their hats. And you could see her say, Oh my goodness. Uh, am I going to have to regulate what people wear to this tournament too? In, in addition to wearing it. And, you know, I thought that was a good argument of the PGA tour. We, it's our television rights. It's our television packages. And you're going to let um, Dustin or uh, Taylor Gooch walk around with a live shirt on my TV. That's, right. that, that doesn't seem fair. I, I agree. So so let's maybe kind of as wind up a little bit and talk about where we think this is going to go, because as you know better than I do, these cases go on for a long time. I had a laugh. I think she announced with maybe September, August, September of next year for the trial date, which she said something like, and I know that's a quick calendar, which it is for these cases, given the amount of discovery that's going to happen. I mean, the average person would look at this, you know, who's not a lawyer and say, a year from now, but but there's actually there's with all the discovery that has to happen, that's not a long time in the future. But in any event, that would be the start of the trial. And you know, where do you sort of? I I, I struggle to see how the tour settles this. I because I don't know what settle looks like. I mean, anything to me, this is kind of like to the death for the tour. I mean, I I don't see how that I don't see what a settlement would look like that would be in the least palatable for them. And so. I don't, I, I, this has got it from there, from the tour standpoint, got to go the distance, don't you think? Yeah, I just don't see any settlement. And I think it relates to the schedule you talked about. So she said, yeah, August of next year, which is unbelievably fast. I'm involved in cases that go 10, 12 years before they get resolved. And actually I have one now that's uh, longer than and still hasn't been resolved. So these antitrust cases tend to last a long time. And I think you know, as a defendant, I think the PJ Tour would not want a quick resolution. I think she threw it out to the parties to say, if you want a year, I'll give you a year. If you don't, you get four or five years out. And if I'm the PJ Tour, I think I want to drag it out. Uh, I don't want to have a conclusion to this because I want to see how this plays out. But I just don't see any settlement because it's all about these rules and their ability to play in competitive golf tournaments. I just don't think you want to open up the spigot and say, okay, you guys can play anywhere you want. And, uh, then you have this choice between making four and a half million dollars for winning a live tournament versus playing in uh, Hilton Head and making one point three million dollars. Right. I mean, 
what are you going to do? You just, I, I just don't think you can allow that to happen. So I would, I think you have to fight it. I, I just don't see any truce. And like I said, you can't agree to say, okay, we're just going to conspire with the live tour and just have one big tour. And that, that's not an answer either. It, it isn't. And I, um, and plus, you know, I know, I mean, I've not read them, but I understand in the, in the contracts that the tour has with their media partners, they have strength of field clauses all throughout it. And I mean, you know, if you were to sort of say, oh, okay, you know, you guys can go back and forth as much as you want. I mean, what happens to your strength of field stuff? I mean, I mean, it would cost the tour real money. I mean, they're in the CBS and NBC would be howling about all that stuff, you know, and they'd be, you know, claiming that, you know, they don't have to pay as much. I mean, it would just spiral out of control for the PGA tour, I think financially. So I don't, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I think your example of the NFL is a perfect one where, the USFL sued the NFL. I mean, yeah, they won. They won literally damages of a dollar, which was trebled to three dollars, and I think they got seventy-five dollars cents of interest. So they got paid three dollars and seventy-four in three dollars. Right. That's right. It was interest. At the end of the day, USFL didn't exist. The NFL became stronger than ever, and so even though you lose, that's a win for the NFL, right? So it, I just think I think the PGA Tour has got to hang in there and uh, fight this. I I agree. This is going to be so interesting. Um, uh, and, you know, and I mean, there's so many nuances of this. I mean, there's the world golf rankings, you know, which the PGA Tour sits. I mean, you know, Monahan sits on that board. I mean, a lot of these guys sit on that board. And I mean, to me, that's going to be um, and this is maybe less. I mean, there's legal aspects to it. But just from a practical standpoint, I just got to wonder, you know, if the four majors uh, even if the four, even if the four majors don't ban them, but if they don't get world golf ranking points, so again, just let me just spend a minute on that. I know I'm getting into minutiae, but I mean it's it's you know there are various. We talked about various ways to qualify. Well, the, let's start with the Masters. This is the easiest one to understand. Past champions always go to the Masters. So Patrick Reed, Phil Mickelson, unless the Masters changes and comes out and says. In parallel conduct, if we're looking at it from the PGA Tour standpoint, you know, Fred really says no live golfers. He could do that. But if he doesn't do that, so Patrick Reed and Phil Mickelson and Charles Schwartzel and, you know, all the former Masters champions that are on live could still play. The rest of the Taylor Gooches of the world, those people, they need world ranking points. And, you know, and we, we don't have to go deep into that other than to note that typically that's 72 old tournaments, no cut. I mean, with a cut, excuse me, these are 54 holes with no cut. It takes a while to get it. And if you don't have world ranking points and you're not playing on the PGA Tour or anywhere else you're getting world ranking points, you're going to fall precipitously pretty quickly in the world ranking points. So a lot of these guys that have gone to live um, may end up getting shut out of the majors, even if the majors don't decide to sort of have an anti-live provision, right? So, I mean, that's sort of another thing I think is interesting. I mean, because I think I don't know. I mean, maybe they're paying so much money, they don't care. But I got to think it's one thing to sort of say, hey, I'm going to give up the PGA Tour. It's another thing to say, I'm not going to be playing in any of the four majors, right? Yeah, I think this is where the rubber is really going to hit the road. I think uh, we've been talking about the key things in the case, but I actually think the key antitrust issues, what they do. So Liv has filed their application to get points. Uh, I understand there's like a 15-step thing, criteria they have to show in order to qualify, which is... Uh, interesting. And so when you look at these industry standard setting bodies, which is what this is, and, you know, yep. a lot of industries have these, you ask, yep. you know, are they applying, are the rules clear? Are you giving parties due process? Are you being fair in the process? And so again, you kind of take the extremes. You, look, you could say if, if they just all got together 
and said, forget live. We're not going to give them points. Let's just come up with some excuse to give them no points. That's clearly a problem. For you know, sure. on the other hand, if you're live, you know, there, there's some arguments to say maybe it's not as competitive because everybody makes a paycheck. But take the other extreme where, say, they decide, okay, we're going to have this new sport. Everybody gets a mulligan once during the round, right? right. And then you could say, all right, well, then it totally makes sense. They're not going to get world ranking points, right? That seems unfair. That's not with the game. But again, I think we're kind of in the middle, right? It's 54 holes. It's, there's no cuts. There's, um, um, you know, th there's music playing. It's, I thought it was really interesting, quite frankly, during the Open when Tiger gave his press conference. Yes. And I thought he is a fantastic lawyer because he kind of walked through all the reasons why the OWGR is not going to give uh, points. And I don't know whether he got that from the PGA Tour or not, but I thought that was brilliant on his part when he walked through the reason they're not. And I think this is where this is going to go. And this is going to be the key thing. And I actually think they're not going to get the, uh, not going to get it. And I think this is going to end up in litigation. I, I agree with you. I, I don't think they're going to get them either. And I think the advantage the tour has is there are established rules and precedent for how the OWGR group deals with whether to grant points or not. There are a bunch of, it's not only a process, I think there is due process, but there's a set of objective criteria that the way Liv is formulated now, it would be hard to argue that they deserve points. I think other than Tiger's tournament in Bermuda, which was, you know, is a no cut 54 hole, but it had a really strong field and they kind of made an exception. They generally have not given world ranking points for 54 hole, no cut, um, uh, events. And so, I mean, it, I, I don't want to be pejorative here, but I think the tour could hide behind that, if you will, and sort of let, let the world ranking things do their work for them. Right. And sort of, you know, because then, and I'm, you know, and I'm sure you're right. It'll be part of litigation, but as a practical standpoint, I just think that could be a real, um, maybe it's not the death knell of live, but I think that could be a real wound to them if all of a sudden none of their players can play other than the ones that have lifetime exemptions, other, you know, like the master's champion that none of their players could qualify for the tour. I just, uh, for the majors, I just think that's, I've always viewed that as sort of the way that the PGA tour can win here, put aside the lost up the way the PGA tour can win here. Cause I think live is going to have a real tough time holding players if they can't qualify. Right. I agree. And uh, if you look at the complaint, I don't think they did themselves any favor there, too, because, you know, in asking to play in the FedEx Cup, there was things uh, alleged like, oh, I need to hone my skill against better competition and on the PGA right. Tour. And you think about that, like, oh, are you saying that the competition is not that great on live and you're not honing your skills there? And right. so um, that could come back and haunt them, I think. For, for sure. For sure. Craig, I, this has been fantastic. Um, I really appreciate you. Um, I know how busy you are. Um, and I really appreciate you spending the time to go through this. It's so interesting. Um, and, and you've um, not only, you know, one of the leading antitrust lawyers in the country, but you've closely looked at this. So it's super valuable and interesting to me to get your thoughts on this. And I thank you for your time on this. It's been great. Well, thank you. I think I told you my wife's uh tax lawyer she no yes. longer is and so it's nice to talk to a tax lawyer who's interested in my golf story so i appreciate that larry anytime i've really enjoyed it all right